The sermon text this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you that we can come together as one body, as people who love you, who worship you. We thank you so much for sending your son to die for the sins of the world and who would then raise to life and change everything. Christ, give me the words to be able to speak truthfully about you. Give us hearts that are are ready to hear what you, oh God, have to say to us. Ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On June 6, 1944, I'll leave you some suspense there. On June 6, 1944, 156,000 U.S., British, and Canadian forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, and began the invasion of Europe. Uh, because of a sophisticated counterintelligence by the Allied forces who were able to kind of trick the Nazis into where they're going to land, as well as some pretty strategic uh, blunders by the Nazi uh, army. They were, able, they were able to land all 156,000 troops and only lose about 4,000 in the process. That's still a lot of people to lose, a lot of men to die in battle, but considering what they were estimating, it was an incredible victory at a very low cost. And within a week, Uh, After securing the beaches at Normandy, over 326,000 men, 50,000 vehicles, and 100,000 tons of equipment were able to land on the beaches of Normandy and begin the invasion of Europe. And most people look back and say that day, which was called D-Day, was the beginning of the end of World War II. From that point on, the Allied forces would slowly march across Europe, and that was the beginning of the end. And so we remember this day, D-Day, and we celebrate it. But why was D-Day significant? What's the assumption here? D-Day was significant because the Allies won. (laughs) If Hitler had been able to withstand the Allied invasion, if he had kept Europe, we wouldn't care about D-Day. It wouldn't be remembered. The significance of D-Day hinges on the fact that, in fact, the Allies won World War II. Therefore, we look back on that day as having significance. It's similar with Christianity and the resurrection. The life of Jesus, his teachings, all he did, they have significance because, in fact, he rose from the grave. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, if his teaching and his self-understanding had not been vindicated by that miracle, 
The movement he began would have dwindled and faded like any number of hundreds and thousands of religious movements throughout the history of humanity. But in fact, Jesus rose from the grave as a historical reality, as an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And because of that, the course of history has changed. Our lives have changed. And that's why we gather on today, on Resurrection Sunday. Because 2,000 years ago, as the sun peaked over the horizon, a man who had lain in a tomb for three days came back to life. And the unimaginable had happened. God had become a man, had carried the sins of the world, had died on a cross, and had come back to life. Now, there are many aspects of the resurrection that we could look at this morning, but we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, specifically 9 through 11, and what it brings out. And so to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going, it's going to be very simple. We're first going to ask, what is true? As we look at the resurrection, as we look at what Philippians tells us about the resurrection, what is true? And then second, what does that mean? (laughs) Why does it matter? So first, what is true? Go ahead and if you, if you don't have a Bible open, uh, feel free to open up your Bible and look at verse 9. Just those first couple words in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We see the word therefore because of what's come before. So we have to remind ourselves, okay, what did we talk about last week? Last week, we talked about how Jesus was the eternal king who, unlike all other kings and rulers, came and emptied himself in service to others, who came as a form of a slave and would die as a state criminal on our behalf. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's talking about that. What he's saying is, look, remember when Jesus came, even though he was in the form of God, he was God himself of the same essence as the Father. We talk about what that means. Even though... Even though he was God, he did not consider his equality with God something he had to hold on to. He did not consider his divine rights, his right to praise and glory and worship and, 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 and the glory he experiences with the Father. He did, not, he did not consider that he had to hold on to that, but he was willing to give, him up, give that up. And so what he's saying is, look, Jesus was saying something about the heart of God, that God is someone who is willing to put aside his divine rights and come to us. So when it says, therefore, what it's saying is that God is vindicating what Jesus said to be true about the heart of God. Yes, Jesus, God is, this is who God is. Therefore, he has highly exalted Jesus. And just to be clear, when it says he has highly exalted him, this is not a comparative, like Jesus was not exalted, and now he's more exalted. It's a superlative. He's the highest exalted. If you remember from high school yearbooks, right, there's always the superlatives, who is most athletic, who is the best looking, most likely to be successful. I was never in those, so clearly they mean nothing, right? They don't actually get at truth. But here's the point. If you were the most athletic, it doesn't mean like, oh, you weren't athletic beforehand, but now you're the most athletic. You know, you were always most athletic, supposedly. I mean, not always true, but supposedly. But now they're just recognizing it. That's what it means. God highly exalted Jesus. Jesus was already exalted, but he's recognizing that Jesus is the highest, most highly exalted. So God highly exalts him, and then he gives him a name. Let's keep reading in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He bestowed on him a name. What is that name? 
is that this is the name Jesus? That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense because Jesus, that was already his name. What would it mean for God to give Jesus a name he already has? So what is, what is this name that is above every name that, that, that God is bestowing on Jesus? Well, the answer doesn't come to the very end in verse 11 when he says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that God bestowed on Jesus is Lord. And it becomes really clear when we see that Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament in verses 10 and 11. He quotes from Isaiah 45. Now, the section he quotes from Isaiah 45 begins in verse 18 like this. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. That's how this section begins. God, I am the Lord, there is no other. Then later in this section, it gets to verse 24. Let me know if this looks from familiar to you. Verse 24, it says, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's God speaking. He says, look, one day every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance to me. Do you see what Paul's doing? Because then Paul, in Philippians 2, verse, was it, 10? It says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Isaiah, where it says, To me, to Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God himself, every knee will bow, Paul saying, to Jesus. When he says Jesus is the Lord, you know, in your Old Testament, a lot of times it'll have Lord, either like capital L, lowercase O-R-D, or it'll be capital all across, L-O-R-D. When it's capital all across, it's referring to God's personal name of Yahweh. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh. That's the name that is above every name. Jesus is the Lord God. Now there's some um, kind of Trinitarian questions, which some of you are like, oh my word, no. And then these are very excited. But anyways, we've got to look at this. Okay, what does it mean if Jesus is the form of God? We talked about that. He was the eternal king from all eternity, God himself, how is all of a sudden he's, like if he was Yahweh before, how is he now being named Yahweh? How is this possible? Well, we have to say what this does not mean. There was an, an early Christian mistake, we could call it, a heresy. You know, so we, we inherit 2,000 years of, of church teaching, Christian theology. In the first couple of centuries, Christians were trying to make sense of who is Jesus. We know he's divine, he's God, and yet he was also, I mean, we lived with him for years. He was a, he was a man. How do we make sense of this? And there was, they were, they were forging it, oftentimes, at, at people's lives. But one of the mistakes, one of the, the beliefs is, is some people believe, okay, well, Jesus, he was, just, he was just this regular, pious Jew man, regular dude, and then at his baptism, like, the, the Christ, Yahweh, came and came down and, and kind of subsumed him. That's not what this is saying. The key is that Jesus was one person with two natures, and this is what the church eventually came to. He was one person, he was Jesus Christ, wasn't, was not schizophrenic, but he had two natures, and this is going to break our minds a little bit. He was divine and he was human. So in 451, a bunch of church leaders got together for the, the uh, Council of Chalcedon, and they came up with, okay, how do we make sense of, of Jesus Christ and who he was. 
And, and actually, before I get this, I want to pause one second. So Jesus is, is one person with two natures. The Son of God has existed from all eternity. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's God himself. Jesus Christ has not. Jesus Christ was a human who, before he was born of Mary, did not exist. That's where it gets complicated. So this is what the Council of Chalcedon said. They said, as regards his Godhead, Jesus' divinity, he's begotten of the Father before the ages. The Son of God is the eternal King. He has always existed. But yet, as regards his humanity, Jesus, begotten for us and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary. The Son of God is from all eternity, begotten of the Father. That means there's no beginning to him. But, when he be- but Jesus is, is the Son of God become man. And Jesus was born of Mary. So when it says that, that God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the Son of God was always Yahweh. But if we had seen Jesus, we would not have thought based on his appearance, oh, there goes the Son of God, there goes God himself. He would have looked like any one of us. And that's why many people did not believe him. And so God had to vindicate Jesus, the Son of God has always been God, and Jesus is that Son. That's what it means to be bestowed on him. He did it by raising him from the dead. If you didn't follow any of that, that's totally okay. (laughs) The important thing, this is the point, is that Jesus is Lord. What is true from the resurrection? Where does it bring us? It is this, that Jesus is Lord. As we talked, part of that means that Jesus is God. He has a divine identity. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we're seeing the eternal, infinite God. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, whoever sees me sees the Father. Like, God doesn't have a body. He, he's, he's infinite, eternal. But when we see Jesus, we're seeing the invisible God. That's the first thing that what, is what this tells us. When it says, Jesus is Lord, he is Yahweh. But it said, the second thing it tells us when we say, Jesus is Lord, there's a second meaning to Lord. Lord can mean, again, Yahweh. It can mean the, the, the personal name of God. But it can also just have a more general meaning of the one who's in charge, the ruler, the master. And in the Roman world, there were many lords. In any city, there would have been many rulers. Just like we have here, we have mayors and powerful men and women who rule. But there was one chief lord in the Roman Empire, and that was Caesar, the emperor. And part of their kind of, you know, how we say Pledge of Allegiance, United States flag, whatever, they would say Caesar is lord. That was their patriotic claim. And if you didn't say Caesar is lord, your patriotism was, was questioned. And so Philippians, the book of Philippians is written to Christians living in the city of Philippi, and the city of Philippi was a Roman colony a deeply Roman, deeply patriotic city, and so a place where the Christians would have been required to say frequently, Caesar is Lord. He is the ruler. And so when Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord, that would have been, what did, wait, what did you just say? And it's interesting, Christians in the first few centuries were seen as a threat to the state. They're seen as subversive because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. Full stop. And I think that's something as Christians we, we have to recover, especially in, in America. Jesus is Lord. The Republican Party is not Lord. The Democratic Party is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And we're gonna, and, and if we follow that through, we're gonna say things that are gonna upset people on both ends. Because <laughs> there's one Lord. His name's not Caesar. His name's not America. His name is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And man, this is a far-reaching confession when we say Jesus is Lord. What we're saying is, not my will but yours in every facet of my life. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of our time. We don't, ha- I mean, we, we talk about, have you guys seen um, uh, Downton Abbey and like the uh, Matthew comes, he's like from more of this like middle class background and the whole family's aristocratic and Matthew's talking about weekends and like, you know, aristocratic England in the 1900s. If you had money, you didn't work. That was, that you didn't have to work. And so uh, the matriarch's like, weekends? What are we talking about weekends? So we have this time, we think, this is my time, Saturday, it's my time, right? Or the, or the evening, it's my time. But when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying, no, Jesus is Lord of all my time. Every breath I breathe is his. Not my will, but yours. We're saying Jesus is Lord of our families. We love our brothers and sisters, our parents, our kids. But we say Jesus is Lord of our family. He is still Lord and ruler and authority. He's Lord of our professions, of what we were called to do by God with our, you know, nine to five work week. He's Lord of that as well. Of course, he's Lord of our finances and everything we own. It is a far-reaching confession when we say that Jesus is Lord. And I tell you what, it, it is a personal confession. It's not possible to say, I understand in concept Jesus is Lord, but I'm just going to do what I want. It's kind of like if you have a boss and you say, I know you're my boss, but I'm not going to do anything you tell me to do. Well, first, you're probably going to be fired. That's usually how that works. Uh, but second, it's like, well, you may say he's your boss or she's your boss, but You're not living like it. Your confession's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he is Lord of my life. He is the one who calls the shots in my life. I submit all my life to him. And this is the sacred confession that we say on Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh. He's God. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the eternal king who has existed for all eternity. He's also the sovereign ruler over all. That is what is true. That's what we affirm on Resurrection Sunday. And before we move on to, okay, what does this mean for us? I have to ask, do you know this Jesus? Do you love him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you do what he says? If you're unsure about that question, there's just, there's no more important question to establish. And I would encourage you to to make sure. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But what is true? Jesus is Lord. Okay, well, what does that mean? Why does this matter? As I mentioned last week, as we celebrated Palm Sunday and the, and the crowds singing, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're laying down their palms, and they think Jesus is going to be this military leader. Jesus was not what they expected. Jesus is often not what we expect. But he's far more than we hoped. Because Jesus was not a military leader come to bring freedom to Israel, but he was God himself come to bring salvation to humanity. He was the Lord. Okay, so what does that mean? When we say Jesus is Lord, it means first that he's Lord over the grave. We all long for immortality. It's been a human longing since the beginning. You can trace through the histories of literature fables about the elixir of life, if you're a Harry Potter fan, right? The Sorcerer's Stone. Something you can eat or drink and it'll, it'll postpone life forever. 
We haven't moved beyond that. There's actually this thing, this thing called the anti-aging movement now, which is kind of like a, a series of more sci-fi literature about what if we could double lifespan to 150. There's still this fascination with like immortality, but at the end of the day, it's all a pipe dream. Because Ecclesiastes 4.19 says this, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts. Everybody dies. No matter how much we long for mortality, how much we can convince ourselves, well, okay, my time is not for a long time. We all died. But Jesus Christ is Lord. And that means he's Lord over the grave. Jesus Christ, he died. His, he stopped breathing. His organs failed. Like, he was not swooning or like weak. He was dead. And then he came back to life. And so we have hope for those who we know who love the Lord and have since passed away. All of us as friends, we have family, we have kids who knew Jesus, who loved Jesus and have died. And it's like, what happened to them? We, we just buried Donnie on Friday, our brother. What happened to him? 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18, verse 20 says this. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has raised from the dead, therefore he is Lord over the grave. And so those whom we've loved, whom we've said goodbye to, the goodbye is not forever. As the psalmist says, you know, the weeping may last for the night. It may be... I don't know who this was. Some poet said this, this world is a veil of tears. There's truth to that. Weeping may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning because Christ is Lord over the grave. You know, when we start saying that Jesus is Lord and he's Lord over the grave, it changes how we see death. With the pandemic, we're, we're thinking a lot more about death today than we have in the past in our culture. And, and, there's, and I've said this before, there's, there's kind of two common tendencies with death. We either, we either ignore it, we kind of sequester it off, you know, we, like, we, we don't have cemeteries next to churches anymore, that's just morbid, it's just we're going to ignore death, or we're going to euphemize it, like, just, you know, okay, it's not that bad, it's the natural way of things, it's good to live a full life and die. And as Christians, we don't do either of those things. Because we don't ignore death. We know death is, 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 is the ultimate consequence of sin. Neither do we pretend it's a good thing. We know it's against God's design. And so what we do when we approach death is we learn from it. We gain wisdom from it. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 10 to 12, Moses actually says this. He says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Death clarifies a lot of things. When you stand in a funeral, you realize no one cares about this person's career accolades. No don't care about what side of town they lived on or how much they made or any of that stuff. They care about is who this person loved, the relationships they had, Ultimately, we care about their service to Christ. Did they know God? Did they love God? 
So as Christians, when, when we approach death knowing that Jesus is Lord of the grave, we don't fear death, but we see life as a gift with a time limit on it. And we try to use it as well as we can. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? First, is that he's Lord over the grave. But second, is that Jesus is Lord and highly exalted now. As Christians, we often talk about the day when Jesus returns, but he's highly exalted now. Look again at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name. That's not future tense, that's present. Jesus is highly exalted now. He's reigning in glory now. Okay, well, an obvious objection to that is if Jesus is reigning now, why don't we see it more? Why is there still death and sorrow and sickness? Well, the answer is that Jesus reigns in glory truly, but it's not manifest. It's not, it's not visible in the way it will be when he returns. But we see it in the eyes of faith. It's like this. There's that classic scene in the workplace. We gather around the water cooler and you're gossiping about whatever office politics. I've worked in a number of offices. I've, I've actually never been in an office that does this, but I've seen movies where this is a thing where people have time just to hang out by the water cooler for hours on end and, 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 and talk. So imagine you're, you know, you're in work and there's a water cooler and you're talking to a coworker and he's like bad talking to the boss, which is what you do around the water cooler. And you're like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden the boss is walking up behind him. <laughs> and, uh, and so you see the boss. He doesn't see the boss. He's talking very loudly about his boss, saying bad things. And so you're like, I look behind you. Stop talking. That's what it's like for us as Christians. The world who's rejected Jesus, their backs are turned to Christ. They don't see him reigning in glory. But we, in eyes of faith, we see it. And so non-Christians like, come on, you stupid Christian. Why do you, why do you say the things you do? Why do you think the things you do? Why do you do the things you do? We're like, oh, if you could see the Lord who is reigning behind you. He's coming. Turn and be saved. Jesus is highly exalted now. The world doesn't see it. It's not made known. It's not made manifest. But we see it with, with our eyes of faith. And it's like, he's there. Let's serve him. He's our risen king. But lastly, Jesus, he's not just Lord of the grave. He's not just exalted now, but he's Lord of the future. In 1011, it says, every name, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I tell you what, it doesn't mean that every knee will bow in worship. Some knees will bow in hatred and, and fear. The idea is when Jesus is, 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 comes back, everyone will acknowledge, oh, you are in fact the Lord. And we will finally see Christ's glory. And then everything will be made right. What will it mean when Jesus comes back, when every knee bows? At the end of The Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the movies, um, this quote's in there, it's in the book. So if you're not familiar with the story, it's a long, epic story, but basically the end of the third book the, the king has returned, the, the enemies have been vanquished, and, and Samwise Gamgee is one of the main characters. He turns to, to Gandalf, who's this kind of prophetic figure. And as, you know, as, as, as the evil powers have been vanquished, he turns to Gandalf and he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What Tolkien was getting at there is he said, when we stand before the presence of God, it's not, it's not just that bad things will stop, is that the joy will make up for the sorrow. 
in ways we can't fathom at this point, in ways we can't understand at this point. The joy of being before the face of God and Jesus Christ will make up. It's not just that sadness will end, it will come untrue. And that's why we celebrate an Easter Sunday. Because Jesus Christ has risen, and therefore he is Lord. He's Lord of the grave, he's Lord exalted now, and he's the Lord of our future. And even though our hearts may ache, yet we're always rejoicing. Jesus is Lord, the King has come, all that is sad will come untrue. And so we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we join together the sacred confession that you are Lord, that you are the resurrected Lord. In you are all the springs of life, of joy, of hope. Give us eyes to see that more and more. Give us ears to, to hear your voice. And we live in the reality of the resurrection. Pray this in your holy and beautiful name. Amen.